was expecting that I would either end up in Washington, D.C. doing some sort of policy stuff or that I would end up on Wall Street doing finance stuff. Who is this guy? He sounds like more of a corporate meister than a mountain meister. Uh, so a typical day would be uh, wake up at 5.45. Usually I was sort of eating breakfast, like right yeah, ahead. Yeah, this sounds familiar. Wake up, eat breakfast, go to work. The best way for me to describe my performance on that was robotic. And then I would go to sleep and I'd wake up again and do it the next day. Except we're not talking about the 9 to 5. This is a different kind of grind. A 6,875 mile trip um, seemed sort of like the ultimate opportunity to see how deep I could dig and to figure out what I was capable of doing. Hello, everyone. A couple of things before we get to the show. First of all, thank you, Catherine, for your generous donation in the month of May. That has won you a prize pack from Mountain Meister, full of goodies from our sponsors. Thanks for your support. For all the rest of you out there, you could be a winner, too. Go to our support page on our website. There are a bunch of different donation options, and you can win extra content, that $100 prize pack, and you'll just generally be a happier person. Now, if you don't have the financial means to support us, there's another way you can help, and that's by leaving us a review on iTunes. It is surprising how much that helps us discover more listeners like you. It's amazing. I asked some of you how you find the podcast, and the majority of you out there have said through iTunes. Thanks. On to the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Mountain Meister. This is Ben. Today with us, we welcome Andrew Skirka. Hello, Andrew. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. For the listeners who don't know Andrew, and at least one of you out there does because you recommended him. Thanks for that. The average person walks 110,000 miles in a lifetime. Just Googled that. Andrew, if I'm not mistaken, you've probably covered that in maybe a 10-year segment in your life. What's the statistic? 110,000 miles? Yep. Uh-huh. Do, you have any, do you know I how long done, that would take? I haven't done that many yet. No? You know, I bet, you, I bet you between all of, uh, you know, yeah. not always trail miles, right? Yeah. It's, I'd say probably between normal living, between my hikes and my regular running, I'm probably, uh, yeah, I'm probably pretty close to that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, Andrew's the only person in the world to have done the Great Western Loop which is 6,875 miles. He's also completed the 7,778-mile C2C route, which connects the Atlantic to the Pacific through Canada and the northern part of the U.S. He's the author of The Ultimate Hiker's Gear Guide, Tools and Tips to Hit the Trail. He's a Nat Geo Adventurer of the Year, and now he's a Mountain Meister. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. You bet. I'm excited to be here, although I have to say, it sounds like you've had more more coffee than I have this morning. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm two hours later than you, so I've got, I have a time advantage. Um, so I always like to start by hearing how people got to where they are, uh, because it's very difficult to relate to the things that you do. So let's just start, maybe tell us about your childhood. Were you always outdoorsy hiker, that sort of person? I was not always uh like outdoorsy hike person i grew up in a like an outdoor family we i grew up in southeastern massachusetts mm. um, just outside of providence rhode island and uh i always had sort of a, an interest in the outdoors whenever we would take family vacations up to like maine and new hampshire vermont i would always get 
really excited and I you know, want to go mountain biking and hiking, but we, I just didn't have the access when I was a kid. Mm. And um, it really wasn't until college um, when I spent two summers working at a, at a camp out in Western North Carolina where I really got exposed to the outdoors in a, in a deeper way. Mm. And so you went down to North Carolina for college? I did, yes. At Duke, I saw? I went to Duke, yeah. yeah. Are you a Duke basketball fan? <laughs> um, you probably I don't was, get a lot of time to I, watch I was basketball. back in the one night in April. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's weird. So living in living in Boulder, Colorado now, uh, they just collegiate sports just aren't that big of a deal right. here, especially in Boulder, and uh, which is odd because CU is here, but uh, you know, people, this isn't really like a professional sports town. Right. Um, so, and they definitely don't get college basketball, uh, <laughs> at least not the bulk of the town. So it's totally different than being like going to school in, in Durham or you know, living anywhere in that, in North Carolina where it's like basketball really is in the blood down there. Right. Um, so you did, you did track at Duke? You were a pretty good track star, right? I, I ran, um, cross country and track and, um, in high school and in college. I say that my, uh, my college career didn't really pan out, um, the way I'd hoped. Hmm. I was kind of plagued by injuries. And the truth is that, like, I, I'm a talented runner, but I'm not, um, like super high caliber. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, my, my high school PR in the mile was like a, it was like a 421 and I ran a 1501 in the 5k in college, but it's not that, bad. <laughs> that doesn't really get you. The reality is that doesn't get you anywhere. Right. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I, and even in, I've been doing some ultra races recently and, uh, last December I ran a 50 miler in San Francisco, which had, and it had about 10,000 vertical feet gains. So you have to kind of put that in context, but my finishing time for a 50 mile race was seven hours and 26 minutes. But the guy who won did it in like six hours and eight minutes. So okay. I'm just not, I'm my, I guess I can blame it on my parents for <laughs> the inferior DNA that they gave. There you go. <laughs> so, so you were inspired by these couple of summers that you did uh, working in North Carolina. What happened after that? What happened after you graduated? Well, I had to go back to school first. Okay. And uh, then I was at this real crossroads because when I went to Duke, I was expecting that I was I would like study um, – like I, I majored in economics and political science. And I was expecting that I would either end up in Washington, D.C. doing some sort of policy stuff or that I would end up on Wall Street doing finance stuff. And then after spending those two summers at a camp, I was like, God, that stuff's for the birds, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I just, like, I love it out here. I want to play. This is, like, this is the way that life should be. So it, um, my last two years at Duke basically were spent trying to figure out some way where I could combine what was, what had become a real passion and, um, and, uh, and then combining that with a livelihood that would be perceived uh, as legitimate and worthy of having spent one hundred and sixty thousand dollars to go to Duke. The, so, what, what was the answer to that? Honest, because that seems pretty difficult to find. Yeah, it doesn't exist. It, it doesn't, <laughs> it's not really out there, and and it's a testament that I get questions on a uh-huh. pretty regular basis from college students who basically tell me tell me their story, which is a mirror image of what mine was, mm-hmm. where they say, "I am at 
Like, like I got an email two weeks ago from a kid from Berkeley. I'm at Berkeley. Um, I love the outdoors. I want to do more of it. But I'm at Berkeley and my parents are putting up all this money and I can't just walk out of Berkeley and go be a backpacking bum hmm. is, was his story. And that was basically mine. And I think for me at the time, like I, th- I think you could make a um, – there are a couple of ways you can kind of combine the two. Um, if you want to combine the two directly, then you're looking at a job, like some sort of field job. So like you are a wildlife biologist. Um, maybe you maybe you like – you don't have to pay your dues, but like maybe you get in with an organization like Knowles, uh, which has um, – it's a large enough organization where you could move your way up and like – actually have a position of influence besides just being an instructor mm-hmm. and um uh or you could also um like another thing you could do would be like a f- some sort of field geologist like oil and gas um, which they do actually end up spending quite a bit of time in the field you could be a some sort of park ranger or like like a you know, some kind of like backcountry ranger that would be okay uh but i think probably the most realistic um combination for most people will be to find a job that um, allows them to use their natural skills, whichever, whatever those might be, but find, the, find a job that is flexible enough um, that it gives you the time to get outside mm-hmm. as much as you want. And the ideal scenario is to be some sort of freelance contractor. So imagine if you like design websites for a living. Right. Well, that's perfect because you can finish up a job and, and basically say like, Peace, I'm out of here. I'll see you in three months. And uh, if you're good at what you do, there'll, there'll always be a demand for your services. Right, right, right. There's potentially an opportunity for me to do that with the podcast. Um, you know, you can figure out your work ahead of time and then go play. Right. Uh, we'll see. So you mentioned all those jobs there to find this answer, combining the passion and uh, making a living. It sounds like the, or at least from what I read, the answer for you was to just go do something so extreme that people took notice and would pay you to do it, um, or at least support almost, you to do it. Almost, not quite. Okay. So yes, I would say that. So the, the decision that I made was to just put the whole like adult responsibility thing on hold mm-hmm. and to be for throughout my 20s to be a, a dirtbag backpacker. So it's no different than a surf bum or a um, like a ski bum. Basically, there's an off season and you and that's the time where you make a little bit of money. And you're probably not going to make too much cuz you don't have really any skills and you're and you're doing contracted work and uh, no employer is going to invest much money in you because you're not going to be there for very long. Um, so that's your off season. And then when, when it's go time, you take off for like six months and you just go do it every single day as much as you want. And that's exactly what I did throughout my 20s. And um, I would say that uh, I was fortunate that, yes, yeah, some of my some of my antics were like extreme enough, yeah, where people took notice and I was able to like scrounge together a living from that. Um, so I would I would do presentations. I would um, and on a few occasions I had like a like a sponsor come forward and want to offer cash. Um, I would I'd make money in the off season doing seasonal work. So I would kind of make it. I just put it together, and um, everyone always says like, "Well, how, how do you, uh, how do you like take off that much time and still make a living?" And it's like, "Well, you don't really need to make much of a living right. um, if you're gone all the time." So, like, 
I'd have to look back at my tax returns, but I think I distinctly recall like in 2010, which was my last big trip, my gross revenue for the year was $24,000. And that included an $11,000 grant from National Geographic. And I was still, I still reported a profit and I still maxed out my Roth Roth IRA. Wow. (laughs) So, um, you know, but I didn't like, I didn't have any limit, like I I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have a cell phone bill. At the time, officially, I was still resident in Massachusetts, so I had um, uh, Romney Care, and so my health care okay. was like greatly subsidized because of how the low in- low income. Of course, like you know, I was gallivanting all around the world, so it didn't really like. It's not like the health care mattered. It's not like I ever used it, but it didn't. Like the point was that I didn't have a health insurance premium to pay, so my expenses were nil. And um, you don't need to make that much money if your expenses are nil. Yeah. My life has changed a lot since 2010. <laughs> so, all right. So, I'm starting to figure out how you manage this, but I still don't understand how you literally hike 30 plus miles, 200 plus straight days. We've had people on here who have done the Pacific Crest Trail, through hike the Pacific Crest Trail. And I've said before, I, I don't, I, I can't understand what 2,668 miles is. I also can't understand what what is this like six thousand plus miles for uh, the Great Western Loop. So, like, uh, how different is that? I know that uh, sounds like a really ridiculous question because one is four four thousand miles longer than the other. But like, what's the difference? So, you're referring to the Great Western Loop, which for your re- listeners was that was a network of established long distance hiking trails that I pieced together to make a loop around the American West. Mm-hmm. So, there's the Pacific Crest Trail, the Continental Divide Trail, the Pacific Northwest Trail, the Arizona Trail, the Grand Enchantment Trail. And then there's um, a few segments where I had to kind of make up my own route. The biggest mm-hmm. one being between the Grand Canyon and uh, the Pacific Crest Trail in Southern California. And so the whole, yeah, the whole thing was 6,875 miles. I averaged, what was it, 33 miles a day for 208 days. And um, the only way, the best way for me to describe that experience or sort of my performance on that was robotic. Uh-huh. Um, I was... I was basically a hiking machine where it was like, it was extraordinarily regimented where I don't like that type of trip is not for most people to, to be that disciplined and to be that efficient and to have to do it for such a sustained period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so a typical day would be uh, wake up at five forty-five. I'd be, I'd be hiking by six o'clock. So it'd take me 15 minutes to get ready. And usually I was sort of eating breakfast, like right at that transition point as I was like moving down the trail. And I would not start looking for a campsite. Like basically like my, like 8.30 was usually like my cutoff for like, I can't, I won't camp any earlier than 8.30. And then typically somewhere between 8.30 and 9.30, um, I would, I would find my camp for the evening and settle down. And then I would go to sleep and I'd wake up again and do it the next day. And um, I, I think um, you know, people, people do through hikes for different reasons. Um, some of them are into like very much sort of like the outdoor experience of it. Um, they want to be sort of like immersed in, in the outdoors. And notice that I'm not saying wilderness. Like... Hmm. <laughs> Um, I'm intentionally not saying wilderness because if you look at where the Pacific Crest Trail goes or the Appalachian Trail, there are some remote-ish areas, but 
you're really never far from something. It's not it's not as wild as it sounds. It's the Appalachian Trail. I, I'm pretty sure that for like a third of the trail, you could hear lawnmowers. Wow. Yeah. So you're like you know basically walking through people's backyards, huh. or you're or you're you know you're. Cr- I'd have to look at the look at the data, but the longest stretch without a road crossing on the Appalachian Trail, I think, is something like, I think it's like thirty miles, and it's in and it's in the hundred mile wilderness in Maine, and that is like an anomaly in the average distance. I bet the average distance between road crossings on the Appalachian Trail is probably like five miles. Hmm. So, um, so you're never far from anything on on the Appalachian Trail, but in any in any event, like some people are out there for sort of that like immersion experience. They're out there to kind of maybe to get away from their kind of that more conventional life that they had. Um, and uh, some people are also very much into like the cultural scene. Um, and it's not the cultural scene, not in like you're meeting town people, um, but uh, that there's it's, the Appalachian Trail uh, specifically has been described as a traveling fraternity party. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't have to be like that for everyone. Um, but you know, there is that element if you want to tap into it. Right. And I'd say for me, you know, part of the motivation in doing these long distance trips was to push. Um, I, I come from these come from these endeavors as an endurance athlete. It's in my nature to want to see what my limits are, and a sixty eight hundred and seventy five mile trip um, seemed sort of like the ultimate opportunity to see how deep I could dig and to figure out what I was capable of doing. And a lot of people will give give me give not just me, but any person who takes that style is like give me give us crap for it. Uh-huh. We're not stopping to smell the roses and you know, we're not doing it the right way. And, you know, whatever, man. Hike your own like, hike, right? So that's what it, they say, you, right? That's what they say and that's not really <laughs> what they mean. Um, you know, I have all the respect for people who who go out on a, on a long weekend and who hike in a couple of miles and set up this like awesome backcountry camp and they bring their big di- digital SLR camera and they bring their guitar and they bring awesome food and bring some, bring some booze for at night. Like, I think that's awesome. I'm glad that they're getting out. That style is perfectly legitimate. It's not for me. Yeah. And, um, I wish that that sort of attitude, uh, transferred over the opposite way as well, because, um, we all have we're all motivated by different things more mountain meister coming up in a bit but first a word from our sponsor it's buff now you know what i love and i bet you love too it's when i wear a balaclava and my hot breath gets all sticky and wet and it starts to feel like i'm suffocating wait a minute no i i don't like that and neither do you and neither does buff that's why they make their products with ultra-technical, ultra-breathable fibers. For more information, go to buffusa.com. They have a whole menu on their website of the ways that you can wear a buff, and they include directions. So if you don't know how to tie a pirate hat, you're like me, they'll show you how. And when you're ready to purchase, go ahead and use the code MEISTER, M-E-I-S-T-E-R, at checkout, and you'll get 15% off of your entire order. All right, on to the show. Feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe I'm drawing a a line here that doesn't connect, but... So you, you graduate college, and... You said you felt a little guilty, maybe. You know, you spend all this money, or your parents spend the money, whoever did, on the schooling, and you don't 
want to end up going into this real world. You want to do something else that maybe isn't uh, as accepted. Was there any part of you that felt like you needed to do something so extreme like this to prove yourself to other people? Hmm. Uh, I don't think that you can do things like this hmm. for the sake of proving something to others. It's too big. That Yeah, that might get you out the door, but I think at the end you have to be yeah. motivated by something deeper. Yeah. Um, I, I will say that Doing things bigger, I think, is that's probably in my nature. And let me clarify something that you sort of implied earlier. So mm-hmm. after I graduated, I I made this very clear recognition that I was at a unique point in my life where I could do something like this. Um, I and I think part of that was because I had flirted with the Wall Street thing, and I saw and I knew what that existence would be, would be like and i knew that like i had a lot of classmates and a lot of teammates who were sort of paying their dues in that yeah and and i was so i knew what that scene was going to be like and it's basically like it's all in and there's no there's no balance and there's no opportunity for like to like get out and and then i think what happens is you kind of you if you're living a conventional life from the moment you graduate college, you sort of like naturally fall into the, I don't want to, I'll call them trappings for lack of a better word from my perspective, but the trappings of adult life. So you suddenly you buy a house and you fall in love with a woman and you maybe have kids and then you're invested in your career and the company that you're with and you have a, like a retirement savings and those things sort of like hold on to you um, and make it difficult for you to get away. So that's why if you were to go like just stand, stand at one point on one of these long distance trails on a given day, you would see these like repeated demographics coming through. Um, and you would notice this contingent of young 20 somethings who aren't adults yet. And they're taking advantage of this unique opportunity in their life to do something that they probably won't have another opportunity to do. Mm-hmm. And then there's the other contingent you'll see are like the recent retirees who didn't do, who didn't take advantage of when they were younger and for whatever reason, either they didn't realize it or that they, that they weren't in a sort of financial situation where they could. And, um, now they're doing it when they're retired. And then there's like in between, there's the, um, kind of like some form of, I, I'm general, I'm midlife crisis here, but basically, yeah, some form of midlife crisis where someone was doing, they had a lifestyle and, um, for whatever reason, that didn't work out. Either they decided that it wasn't working out or there was like some sort of abrupt end to something like a relationship or a job. Or um, And so, for example, the year I did the Appalachian Trail in 2002, there was this contingent of laid-off high-tech software. Mm, right, yeah. <laughs> because, and that was... That was their gig that they had worked their tails off at you know somewhere, a lot of them in, from California and elsewhere in like a bunch of technology hotbeds, and they had all been laid off. And they're like, "Well, I've worked really hard for the last couple of years. Um, I don't see a scenario where my um, kind of this this job, this industry is going to kind of rebound quickly. So I am going to go do something different." Mm. Yeah, and it's so I think it, we need to say that none of those are right or wrong. Like I don't think that's the the point you're trying to make or that I would try to make either. It's more like 
people are different. And like I kind of relate it to what I'm doing with the podcast too is I have the opportunity to do this now. I better take advantage of it. Some people don't have the opportunity and maybe the opportunity comes later in life. And I think that's kind of like a an interesting uh, point that you made there. It's like, you know, there's different times in your life that people do this. Some like to take advantage early. Right. Cool. Yeah. I try and just sort of um, a more general point to that. I try to be really open-minded about sort of why people do the things that they do. Mm-hmm. And um, I tend not to get too – try not to get too caught up on like what motivates people and um, uh, why people make the decisions that they do. I, um, and – Mostly because I don't have any sort of control over that. <laughs> so they're going to do what they want to do. And if I get upset about that, then I'm just you know, wasting my breath. Yeah. It's tough, though, to sometimes not get judgmental. <laughs> it definitely is. It's really yeah. hard. Uh, yeah. I notice it, like when I, myself, when I research people before the interview, I get all these judgments. And then when I finally talk to the person and pick their brain, normally turns out differently or the motives are different than what I originally thought. Well, now you've piqued my interest. Right. <laughs> well, for you, for you, judge, judgments were you making? Well, before me? yeah, this is interesting. So yesterday, I read quite possibly the like seriously the most interesting thing I've ever read in my life, and it may potentially be life changing. I'm not exaggerating here. Um, it's this is I told you before the show. I'm really interested in this field of behavioral economics, and what this tries to do, where general economics assumes that. People are rational, right? We're motivated by incentives. Um, behavioral economics kind of says, well, a lot of the decisions that we make aren't always rational. And how can we like figure out how humans operate in order to uh, do better? So what this paper looked at, I'll put this on your Meister profile page. Um, what this paper looked at was why people climb. Why do mountain mountaineers climb? And like the typical answer from uh george mallory was because it's there have you heard that before like of course. The because yeah. Of, yeah everyone's heard that yeah. yeah so what this paper looked at is like well why do people actually climb and it takes some of these normal economic models say that normally those incentives are consumption right so we either get money right. for something or we get some sort of reward out of it right. there's this philosopher jeremy bentham who looked at other utilities, let's call them, like other other rewards that we get. One of them is self-recommendation. So wanting recognition for something that we do. Um, we like have this need to it's impress nice others. It's a very nice word for ego. Yeah, yeah. It, which <laughs> okay. like, yeah, exactly. And like, I don't know, maybe some of the things that you do are strictly well not strictly but one reason is to get recognition from others and this obviously isn't specific to you it's like i wouldn't be putting out this podcast if i wasn't getting any sort of recognition for it that's one little thing another one is like goal completion where we have this internal drive to just like complete goals there's something in us that wants us that want to complete goals so that's maybe another reason why you do what you do but then i'm also finding out through our conversation that some of those things aren't enough, like you said before, um, that whole college discussion that we had earlier. Am I making sense here? Yeah, I think that totally makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, I also studied economics, so I, yeah. I'm familiar with the way in which economists sort of explain the world, but mm-hmm. I have also seen the limitations of that too. Yeah, super interesting. I, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll send you this paper. Let's go to something more tangible, and it's gear. 
because you talk all about gear on your website. Um, I think you saw you have like 200 blog posts at least. I don't know if you have an exact number on that. You have a lot though. Anyway, normally we get just like a gear recommendation. You can recommend anything you like, but Andrew, you're more known for hiking really lightweight. So I was wondering if you could recommend a piece of gear or two pieces of gear that maybe are less weight but still achieve the same functionality that what people may already be using. One of the things that I emphasize in discussing gear is that it should be appropriate for your objective and that it should be appropriate for the conditions that you'll likely experience. Mm. And so when I talk about objective, um, I think the most important thing to think about when you're when you're planning a backpacking trip is basically the, the ratio of hiking versus camping that you plan to do. Mm. So hiking, it's, it's this, uh, it's an aerobic activity, it's active, um, and any, any weight that you're carrying is counterproductive to your efforts to hike. So I don't know, you go out there on a day hike and you're like, wow, my pack is so light, I really even recognize it. I just fly right up this mountain. You're like, you know, yeehaw. And then you go on a backpacking trip and you try to do that same mountain and you're carrying like 50 pounds worth of stuff. And you're like, man, this hill is a monster. And uh, this really stinks. And then camping is just the opposite where you actually want a bunch of stuff when you're camping. <laughs> like, uh, you want a guitar and, uh, like, a lantern and, like, a two-burner Coleman stove. And um, obviously those things aren't, some of those things aren't um, sort of appropriate for a backpacking trip, but you kind of get the point. It's like, basically, you need to pick where you want to be comfortable, either on the trail or in camp. And it's not like you have to pick either or. Um, there is a there is a happy medium or a balance that you can achieve, but I think that um, I think that for most people they would be far they they would have a far better experience by carrying less mm -hmm. because usually people on a backpacking trip they're not going out there just to camp like they're, it's pretty rare that someone goes in a, only a couple of miles and spends like the whole weekend there. Usually they're gonna try to like move camp every day and they're going to try to cover you know more than 2 or 3 miles they're going to try to carry you know cover like 10 or maybe 15 um and if you're doing 10 or 15 miles you don't want to be carrying a lot of stuff um so when i talk so again um you need to pick gear that's appropriate for your objective and you also need to pick gear that's appropriate for the conditions and by the conditions i mean all of those are like environmental and root conditions so uh, temperatures precipitation water availability sun exposure wildlife insects um the uh, the footing my recommendations to someone who's going to plant hike the appalachian trail is entirely different than my recommendations to someone who's going to through hike the pacific crest trail and and even on the Pacific Crest Trail, what you need in Southern California is different than what you need in Washington. And uh, it's not entirely different. There are some systems that carry through regardless of the of the environment. So, for example, like my my stove system for three season conditions, pretty much all of the time is an is an alcohol stove. And um, an alcohol stove, it's, you're not going to be able to find it like a big box retailer. In fact, you might even struggle to find one, especially a tea retailer. Most alcohol stoves are homemade, and they burn denatured alcohol uh, or heat, which is that yellow bottle of Gasline antifreeze uh, you can buy at the convenience store. Okay. Uh -huh. And um, they're super lightweight. Um, they 
cost very very little. The fuel is really easy to find. Um, they're not they don't have the firepower that like a canister stove has or the white gas or liquid gas stove has. But um, for what they lack in firepower, I mean, and what, when I say lack in firepower, so maybe it takes you like seven or eight minutes to bring your water to boil instead of like three. It's not that big of a deal. Well, that was very well presented. Defining <laughs> defining what you want and then presenting the gear recommendation after that. I like it. For the listeners, alcohol stoves. You said they're most likely not a brand. They're homemade. Yeah, they're usually homemade. It's yeah. like one of the – you'll find hundreds of designs, um, but one of the, the designs that I've used for a long time, it's you make it out of a three-ounce uh, cat food can. Huh. And uh, you can make a – a windscreen out of aluminum foil and it's not it's not it's a pretty simple and in some respects kind of a stupid uh, stupid device i mean it's basically just a cup that has some holes in it <laughs> and you put alcohol in it and light it and it like it starts the flame starts off pretty mellow and then it picks up heat um do you, do you uh, have a uh, sophisticated yeah i do have a, like a how-to article okay on the website. yeah i'll find i'll find that and put that on your page yeah, and there are other more sophisticated alcohol stove systems where it's a, a more stable windscreen and um, a more efficient system. But um, that that cat food can stove will get you started. Mm-hmm. Very cool. So the last question that we have for you uh, is: Who would you like to see as the next person on this show? So ideally, somebody who uh, has inspired some of the things that you do, or you just find like really, really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um well so my my current interest with my trips um the theme is short is the new long <laughs> and we didn't really get into it during the call here but uh you know I'm known for doing these really long backpacking trips but my life has changed a lot since my last big one in 2010 so in that time I I got married I bought a house and I kind of lost interest a little bit in like spending six months out. Um, so I've kind of been struggling a little or was struggling a little bit to figure out sort of this, um, some, some type of trip where I could still get out of it what I want and still sort of scratch that itch, mm-hmm. but, but do it within the, within limitations that I didn't used to have. And so the short is the new long series. It's very ambitious routes that cover an entire like some sort of um, definitive topography so an entire mountain range or an entire canyon system or uh, a traverse of like an entire wilderness area but something something a a route that has a very well-defined beginning middle and end Mm -hmm. and my idea with doing these sorts of trips and all these trips will end up being like for me, like a week plus minus in time and about a hundred miles plus minus in distance. And, uh, for other people that, you know, the time that they would need might vary. Um, but, um, it, it basically allows me to have a really intense and awesome experience from start to finish and give me, and give me like something, um, and allow me to feel really good about it at the end. And, Instead of, say, the long distance experience, which is that basically, like, if you don't hike from, if you don't hike from Mexico to Canada, <laughs> you're nothing. Okay. And then also on a long distance trip, you end up waste, I don't, 
wasting is a strong word, but I'm going to use it. You end up wasting a ton of time hiking through really marginal landscapes mm. because the reality is that if you look at a map of the lower 48, there just isn't that much topography that you want to spend a whole heck of a lot of time in. So a lot of the long distance trails, they are they piece together these jewels, but the miles in between those jewels are pretty darn boring. Mm-hmm. And you know what? As a you know, as a husband and a homeowner and a small business owner, I don't have time <laughs> to 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 do those sort of marginal sections yeah. anymore. So um so Getting back to the, your, your question, so a couple of people who really have inspired me, and I don't know, you would, you might struggle to hunt them down. Um, one guy's name is Steve Roper. He wrote the guidebook for the Sierra High Route, and he wrote a series of guidebooks prior to that about the High Sierra. Uh, mostly known as a climber, but obviously he had some backpacking skills as well. And the other person that um, is kind of coming to mind right now is a guy named, by the name of Steve Allen, who wrote the definitive guidebook for Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument in southern Utah, which I put in my top five, maybe even top three for like best wilderness areas in the lower 48. And Steve Rope or and Steve Allen um, has a similar route in his um, in one of his guidebooks. Uh, the guidebook is called Canyoneering Three, and uh, it's called the Overland Route. And it's basically he stitches together a a route that will take you down the entire Escalante River, um, but not down the river bottom itself. Usually it's called overland because it's off to off on the the benches and side canyons. But if you could if you could sort of hunt either of those guys down, I would that would be a podcast I'd love to hear. They've been both of those guys have been big inspirations for me and love to hear what they have to say. Awesome. We'll see if we can track them down. We have a track record of tracking down some pretty good people on this show, including you. Thank you so much for joining us today, Andrew. For the listeners, you can find out more andrewskirka.com. We also will have highlights of today's episode on our website, MTN meister.com andrew's the author of the ultimate hiker's guide tools and tips to hit the trail thanks a lot andrew thank you ben andrew skirka putting more miles on his legs than most of us put on our cars thanks andrew for joining hope you had fun i had fun Hope you, Meister fans, had fun listening to this episode. If you'd like to hear some more from Andrew, we recorded some extra content with him about uh, gear, training, that sort of thing. You can purchase our Play Director package. That's on our support page. For $20 a month, you get access to extra content from Andrew's interview and also all of the other Meisters that we've recorded. Also, you'll be alerted ahead of time when we record with the Meisters so you can ask them the questions you want to ask. Thanks for listening and enjoy doing the rest of whatever else you do while you listen. I'm the host, Ben Shank, and until next time, you've been listening to Mountain Meister. Mountain Meister.